I invite you to open your Bibles this morning to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, as we embark upon this study of the gifts of the Holy Spirit, what they are, how they're to be used, why they exist. This is part of a larger study in all of 1 Corinthians, your part in building a healthy church in a pagan world. And as I have mentioned before, Paul was asked a series of questions by the Corinthian church, and here in this section of 1 Corinthians, he is answering various of those questions. So if you've got your Bible open to 1 Corinthians 12, I'm going to ask you right now to skip back to chapter 7, verse 1. You'll see some markers that identify the questions that the Corinthians asked. And that marker is generally the words now concerning or now. And so let's look at some of those questions that have already been asked. Verse, chapter 7, verse 1, now concerning the matters about which you wrote, and he embarks upon a, 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 his thoughts about marriage. If you skip to chapter 7, verse 25, now concerning the betrothed, and this was a section on those who were betrothed to be married or virgins. We looked at that as a study in that section as well. Then chapter 8, now concerning food offered to idols. And that took you all the way through chapters 8, 9, and 10, a discussion of what to do about the eating of food offered to idols. Chapter 11, verse 2, now I commend you, and he talks about some things that he's commending them on, and we looked last week at that section on head coverings, and the week before we flipped it, we did that uh, backwards, but verse 17, in the following instructions, I do not commend you. So this is dealing with some questions that the Corinthians had asked about the issue of the Lord's table. Chapter 12, verse 1, now comes to yet another question that the Corinthians were asking the Apostle Paul, now concerning spiritual gifts. They had lots of questions, there were lots of problems, there were lots of excesses at Corinth, and they were asking the question, what are spiritual gifts, how are they to be used, why do they exist? So we'll look at verses 1 through 13 this morning. And then we'll take up the rest of the chapter next week. If you would, please stand for the reading of God's Word, 1 Corinthians 12, verses 1 through 13. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit. To another, faith 
by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healing by the one Spirit. To another, the working of miracles. To another, prophecy. To another, the ability to distinguish between spirits. To another, various kinds of tongues. To another, the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as He wills. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. Please have a seat. In verses 1 through 3, we discover that passion without information leads to problems. Has that ever happened in your life where you've met someone who is extremely passionate, but they didn't know anything? It, it leads to all kinds of problems. You can commend them for their passion, but you're just like, well, you need, to, you need to know a little bit. And the person with passion can hear that and think, why are you pouring cold water on my emotion here? You know? But passion without information leads to problems. And that was what was going on in the church at Corinth. The Corinthians had asked Paul, and they were lacking information about spiritual gifts. Now, more specifically, and we will get into this in detail in chapter 14, but there was an issue about the matter of speaking in tongues in worship. The reason is that the Corinthians thought themselves spiritual, and by spiritual, they meant that they were like angels. So, for example, in chapter 7, the way that played itself out was that the Corinthians had the notion that not having marital relations was somehow a spiritual thing, and Paul wants to dispel them of that idea. In chapter 15, they are, Paul's going to address the problem that the Corinthians believed that in the resurrection, in the life to come, they would not have physical bodies. And Paul wants to dispel them of that notion. And so it's all designed around giving the Corinthians information because passion without information leads to problems. Now, you'll notice that Paul begins in verse 2 after saying, I don't want you to be uninformed. He says, you know that when you were pagans, you were led astray. What Paul is saying is that their life before they became Christians is informing their Christian experience far more than it should be. So, for example, the mystery religions that were in Corinth, the worship of Sibeli and Addis, Dionysianism, the religion of Apollo, all of those things carried with them, for example, the speaking of ecstatic languages, a speaking in tongues. That's the background of their pagan world. In fact, and we'll look at this in detail in weeks to come, psychological anthropologist and linguist 
Philicetus Goodman says that when you compare the way in which there certain Christian groups use speaking in tongues today with the features of speaking in tongues that are virtually represented in nearly every religion in the world, there isn't any difference. There's no distinction between Christians and non-Christian pagan religions. It sounds to me like what Paul is going to address here is to say that there needs to be something distinctly different about being a Christian. The key issue, therefore, is not what happens or how intense it is. There's passion all over the place. The key issue for Paul is the affirmation of correct theology. So in verse 2, Paul is saying, be careful that you are not led astray by your prior associations with paganism. Your prior experience in paganism is not a guide to true spirituality. You see how he says it? You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Don't let that be your guide to true spirituality now that you're a believer. Specifically, verse 3, no speech that distorts the person of Christ is ever from the Holy Spirit. No speech that distorts the person of Christ is ever from the Holy Spirit. He says, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Now, this is not just about saying those specific words. It is rather about the denial of the person and work of Jesus as given by the apostles in the Scriptures. Just because someone doesn't say the words Jesus is accursed doesn't mean that they are not distorting the person and work of Jesus. In fact, there are groups today who use the name of Jesus, but they are, the word Jesus that they are using is not the Jesus of the Bible. Um, one particular popular group believes that Jesus was God, then when he was here on earth, he stopped being God, and the reason he stopped being God was to show people how they could, in their perfect humanity, do the same kinds of miracles that Jesus did. This is not the Jesus of the Bible. This is a distortion. They are saying, even though they aren't saying those exact words, they are saying Jesus is accursed. Another group, very popular these days, believes that <clears throat> God the Father was, existed at one time, and then God the Son, Jesus, existed, and now G God exists as the Holy Spirit. It's a heresy known as modalism. God existed in various modes at various times. That group, again, is saying, even though they aren't saying the specific words, Jesus is accursed. It is a denial of the person and work of Jesus as given by the apostles in the scriptures. <clears throat> Likewise, the affirmation 
Jesus is Lord is not about saying those specific words. There are all kinds of people who say those words, but that's not what's being, what's being uh, um, criticized here by the apostle. The demons told Jesus that they knew who he was, What Paul is saying here is that only by the truth that comes from the Holy Spirit can someone truly affirm the lordship of Jesus Christ. Only by the Holy Spirit can we come to a knowledge of the truth. Paul talks about this in detail in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 3 and 4. Listen to what he says. I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, they're using the word Jesus, but it's not the Jesus of the Bible. Or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted. You see, there are people who use the words Jesus and gospel Don't just swallow that and say, well, I guess they're speaking the truth because they may be using the word Jesus and meaning a completely different person than the Bible describes. They may be using the word gospel and intend an entirely different message than the one that the Bible describes. In fact, the cults depend upon this lack of discernment. Paul is saying that only by the truth that comes from the Holy Spirit can someone truly affirm the lordship of Jesus Christ. So, let me ask you a question by way of application here. What is your definition of true spirituality? Is it the intensity of emotional expression? You know, there are some folks who are very intense in their emotional expression, and you think, wow, they are really spiritual. Now, let us not deny their sincerity. They may be indeed sincere, but the intensity of emotion is not our guide for true spirituality. Listen, brothers and sisters, biblical theology, the teaching of the Scriptures, is the cup in which the expression of true worship and true spirituality is contained. And when we depart that cup of the Scripture's teaching, we descend into personal experience. Well, this is the ecstatic experience I had. And who of us can deny someone else's experience? We can't deny that. But what we can do is take their experience and line it up with according to the Scriptures, and we can say, this doesn't accord with what the Bible teaches. One's experience is not the definition of true spirituality, nor is one's emotional affirmations nor is one's self-assured connection with God. There are all kinds of people who feel a great connection with God. That's the whole idea behind the new age. The theology of the Bible is the cup in which the expression of true worship and true spirituality is contained. Now, one of the reasons why I make that point so 
much in detail and so intensely is because of the next few verses. Look at how quickly Paul moves from this idea passion without information leads to problems. Notice how quickly he moves from there to great theology. Verses four to six, the unity of the triune God is expressed in the variety of spiritual gifts. Look at verse four. There are varieties of gifts, but the same spirit. Circle the word spirit there if you're in the habit of marking your Bible. The emphasis in this verse is on God the Spirit. Expressions of our worship are gifts from God the Spirit. So think about it for a moment. What is it that mature people do with a gift? I don't know about you, but when I was a little boy and I got a gift, I'd say, look, look at my gift, look at this. <laughs> look, approve me because I have this great gift. No, mature people do not trumpet their gift. They don't look at the other person's gift and their own gift and they go, mine's better than yours. They don't trumpet or announce their gift's superiority. They don't put down other gifts. Well, that's not very good at all. They don't do that. And they don't say that their gift is essential and all other gifts are optional. Variety of gifts, but the same spirit. Verse 5. There are varieties of service but the same Lord. Circle the word Lord there. Varieties of service, but the same Lord. The emphasis in this verse is on God the Son. That's who the Lord is here. It's the Lord Jesus. And the expressions of our worship are servant ministry. So Paul's going to use a variety of synonyms here to describe spiritual gifts. In verse 4, it's gifts. In verse 5, it's service. Verse 6, it's activities. Verse 7, it's manifestation of the Spirit. It's all talking about the same stuff, spiritual gifts. But you'll notice here, the emphasis is on the word Lord, and it's about service. Have you ever wondered why it is we call what we're doing right now a worship service? a worship service. It's because as we gather together for the worship of Almighty God, what we're hoping to have happen is for the variety of the gifts of the body to be in service to one another and to Almighty God for His glory. What kind of demands do servants make on their service? When was the last time a servant said to his master, hey, let me tell you how I'm going to serve you. <laughs> no, no, no. The master says, here's how you're going to serve. The Lord Jesus is our master, and we don't make demands on him on how we serve. We don't tell our master and others that our service is essential and others is not. We don't draw attention to our service telling others that it is superior. It is service to the same Lord Jesus. Verse 6, 
There are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. Circle the word God. What we have here is the expression of God the Father. There's a variety of activities. Another way to translate that is workings. But the same God, the emphasis is on God the Father. The expression of our worship involve activities, workings of everyone in the church that is effective, that accomplishes God's purposes. Everyone is needed. Everyone is essential. Now, what demands do people place on their activities? Do they say that their activities are more important than all others? Do they draw attention to their activities as superior and essential compared to others? Or what happens to the dynamic of a church when most of the people are watching and there's just a few people serving? What happens when workers who are serving don't really care how effective they are just so long as all the other workers look at them and think that they're being semi-responsible? You see... These gifts, these result in activities that are the workings of the same God, God the Father, and we do them as an act of worship and for the building up of the body of Christ. Do you see how Paul has moved very quickly now from passion without information leading to problems to great theology? He's talked about God the Spirit, God the Son, and God the Father in these varieties of gifts, varieties of service, varieties of activities, and that God empowers those gifts, all of them, in everyone who's a believer in the body of Christ. Now, these variety of gifts has one aim and one source. Verse 7, the aim is not personal edification. It's not even personal spiritual growth. Did you know that God doesn't give believers spiritual gifts for their personal edification primarily or for their personal spiritual growth? Now, that can happen, but that's not the purpose. Verse 7, the purpose of the gifts is the building up of the body of Christ as a whole. Verse 7, to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit. For what purpose? For the common good, to build up the body of Christ. And so in verses 8 through 11, we have a list of gifts. Now, this list of gifts is not exhaustive. That is, all of the gifts aren't listed here. In fact, there are four places in the Bible where spiritual gifts are mentioned, and in each case, every list is illustrative of the spiritual gifts God gives, not exhaustive. So, a lot of times people want to try to exhaust the gifts of the Spirit. I'm not sure that that's a very good effort since every list is different. There's a list in Ephesians 4, there's a list in Romans 12, there's a list in 1 Peter 4, there's the list here, and every one of those lists is different. 
The reason I think that they're different is that Paul's not trying to exhaust the list of how the Spirit gives gifts to individual members of the body of Christ for the blessing of the body. Rather, he's wanting to illustrate it. These are some of the ways that the Holy Spirit gifts people for the building up of the body. These aren't all the gifts. And if some of these gifts are not present, it does not mean that a church is defective. To say that a church must have all the gifts is a misunderstanding of Paul's point here. The point is to show that each gift is designed to bless the church, not to bless the individual. The focus is on the visible making known of the true three-in-one God. The whole point of it is to be able to visibly, by our expressions of our gifts in the body of Christ, to make known God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, the three-in-one God is alive and at work in His church. Now, in some cases, there is a miraculous expression of these gifts. That is, the expression of the gift involves a miracle. In other cases, there is not a miraculous expression. Notice that the presence or absence of the miraculous is not important to Paul. In our own day, we tend to think of the miraculous expression of gifts as somehow more important. We will be looking in weeks to come at these miraculous expressions and why it was that they existed here and why it is that we believe that they don't now. But for now, let's simply look at the list. Verse 8, to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, God using the spoken word to open blind eyes to faith in Christ. Is there a miraculous component to this? You betcha. Literally every time a person believes in Jesus to forgive them of their sin, you are witnessing the greatest miracle that you will ever see. Spiritual death coming to spiritual life. This is what Paul talked about in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 6 through 16. And he speaks about wisdom from God. And so I would encourage you to look at the message from a few weeks ago if you're interested in learning more about this gift of wisdom. Uh, the second one that's listed here in verse 8, to another, the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit. This is insight into God's Word. Uh, in a miraculous component, it could be knowledge that could, be not, that could not be known without the Spirit's aid. For example, Agabus in Acts predicted a famine that ended up taking place. But the grammar here indicates the phrase, a knowledgeable word, which seems to de-emphasize a miraculous component. The third gift is in verse 9, to another faith by the same Spirit. Now, all believers have to possess a gift of faith to some extent or they would not be believers. 
But here there is a miraculous component when it has a supernatural conviction that God is going to act in a special way in a specific instance. The next is gifts of healings. It's actually both plural, gifts of healings by the one spirit. This seems not to be a permanent gift, but rather each healing is a gift of its own and the gift resides in the person that God uses for the healing of another. You will notice to this point in verses 8 and 9 that there's a repeated line. Verse 8, given through the Spirit, according to the same Spirit. Verse 9, by the same Spirit, by the one Spirit. Do you see those repeated phrases? What Paul is wanting to emphasize is that these are all given by the Spirit of God. They are not somehow conjured up on our own. Paul doesn't stop saying by the same Spirit, by the way, in the next few lists because those next gifts are not by the same Spirit. I think he stops adding it because it's getting a little repetitious and he's wanting to just uh, keep moving on here, right? So the next gift is the working of miracles in verse 10. Literally, the workings of powers, the plurals suggesting that each is a gift of its own. Then to another prophecy. This involves predictive stuff, but the focus is on the Spirit-inspired, intelligible messages for the building up of the church. So there's a miraculous and a non-miraculous component here. Then there is the distinguishing of spirits, discerning what is truly of the Spirit of God and particularly the prophetic statements mentioned just above. And then to another, various kinds of tongues. We'll have much more to say about that in chapter 14. This is the Spirit-inspired utterance, whether or not it is a known human language, but it is in fact a real language, even though it may not necessarily be intelligible either to the speaker or the hearer. And then last, the interpretation of tongues. This is a companion gift to tongues. Since tongues are unintelligible to most speakers and hearers, we might call the gift of interpretation of tongues the gift of ears. (laughs) That is, they can hear and understand what's being said and tell others about it. Notice verse 11, repeated once again, after all the times that it says, it's through the Spirit, by the one Spirit, by the same Spirit, by the same Spirit, now he repeats it again, verse 11, all these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. All these gifts are the work of one and the same Spirit who gives to each one just as He, the Spirit of God, determines it. Notice, we don't determine it. It's the Holy Spirit who does that. It doesn't say, given different gifts just as you desire them. No. It's as the Spirit determines. Though Paul calls upon us later to desire the higher gifts, We are not determinative. 
the Spirit does what He wants in the distribution of His gifts. So all true spiritual gifts are the work of the Holy Spirit. They are not talents. They are not the result of some phony effort on our part to try to get them. He's the one who gives to each one. He does so just as He determines. And a very strong word is used there. It's His determination, not ours. The variety of gifts has one aim, the building up of the body, one source, God the Holy Spirit. So now we come to verses 12 and 13. One spirit has placed many parts into one body. Paul's using an illustration here of a human body. Just as the human body is a unity and has many parts to it, many members, and all the members of the body, though there's many of them, are one body, so it is with the body of Christ. Many members, but the members, though many, make up one body. The point of this verse is the diversity of the parts to make the body function. We don't say, well, and Paul's going to go into detail about this next week. We don't say that one part of the body is more important than another. Um, The focus then of verse 13 is on one baptism of the Holy Spirit, which puts all believers into one body. Look at verse 13. For in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. It's the body of Christ, the church. Jews are Greeks, slaves are free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. This is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is not an ecstatic experience. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is the placing of a believer upon their conversion into the body of Christ. So if someone asks you, have you been baptized in the Holy Spirit? If you're a believer in Jesus, your answer is yes. Yes, I have received the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Now, they will not think that you have because their definition is different than the biblical one. But every believer receives the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Now, it's important, it's going to be really important in next week's uh, message and the following that you understand what I'm about to talk about. God had, through the entire Old Testament, worked through one entity, the nation of Israel. And then today, He is at work through one entity, the church of Jesus Christ. In the first century, there was a transition between Israel and the church. It's important to understand the transitional nature of the work of God from Israel to the church to include the Gentiles, which meant that during that transition, the baptism of the Holy Spirit was less immediate. By the time Paul writes 1 Corinthians, though, he can say with confidence that the baptism of the Holy Spirit is an immediate act of the Holy Spirit for every believer, whether you're a Jew 
or a Gentile, slave or free, all were made to drink of one spirit. This is a very important principle to understand when it comes to spiritual gifts, this transition that happened in the first century church. Before the church was mature, here's how things worked. You would put your faith in Christ, salvation, and then sometime later, you were initiated into the body of Christ by the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Let me read for you uh, a section from Acts chapter 19, which describes this way in which things worked and how it's different by the time Paul writes 1 Corinthians. Acts 19, 1 to 6. It happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples, and he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, into what then were you baptized? And they said, into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him. That is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. So, in this transitional period of time between Israel and the church, what was happening was people were saved. Paul says, hey, uh, have you heard, uh, into what baptism did you receive? They said, John's baptism. Have you been baptized in the Holy Spirit? They said, we don't even know that there is a Holy Spirit. And then this thing happens where Paul lays his hands on them. They receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. They begin to speak in other tongues. But by the time Paul writes 1 Corinthians 12, 13, notice it carefully. For we were all baptized by one spirit into one body. You see, the transition by the time Paul writes 1 Corinthians is complete. And so when people want to build their theology around what's going on in the transition, they're going to think that you need to believe and then receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit in some subsequent experience. But when you look at 1 Corinthians 12, 13, you understand that transition is now complete and there's no longer any distinction between Jews and Greeks, slave and free. We have all been made to drink of one spirit. The sign gifts then, these miraculous expressions of the gifts of the Holy Spirit, were ways to demonstrate that God was doing and creating something entirely new in humanity. He was creating the church. And once the church exists, then the purpose for the sign gifts diminishes. So, one spirit has placed many parts into one body. Now, if it's true that every believer has received the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and 1 Corinthians 12, 13 says that's true, how is it that you and I can reflect our being baptized in the Holy Spirit, our being placed into the body of Christ? I think there's three ways. 
One is by water baptism. The word baptism in the New Testament always has a component of the physical act of water baptism. Now, water baptism doesn't get you the baptism of the Holy Spirit. But what water baptism does do is it symbolizes what Jesus did for you in saving you, and now you belong to the body of Christ, the church, and so it is a way for you to say, I have been placed into the body of Christ by the Holy Spirit. It's a way for you to reflect the Spirit baptism. A second way we can reflect Holy Spirit baptism is by church membership. If the whole goal of spiritual gifts is for the building up of the body of Christ, then being a part, a member of the body of Christ is a pretty important thing. It's a way to reflect that we are baptized in the Holy Spirit. When we become members of a local body, we are declaring, I've been born again of God, I've been baptized by the Holy Spirit into the body of Christ, and I want to reflect that by uniting in membership with a local church. So, if you're a believer in Jesus and you've never been baptized, I would encourage you to do that as a way of declaring the fact of God's having already baptized you in the Holy Spirit. I would urge you likewise then to become a member here at East White Oak as a way of reflecting that you have been born of God, you've been baptized by the Holy Spirit into the body of Christ, and that you want to use the gifts that the Holy Spirit has given you for the building up of the body of Christ. And then third way we can reflect Holy Spirit baptism is by the use of our spiritual gifts. All believers are baptized in the Holy Spirit. All have spiritual gifts. It's my view that these gifts are mostly given at the time of salvation, but they can come later. But every believer is important to the function of the body. Every believer is equipped to serve the body of Christ. And so one way we can reflect the fact that we have been born of God and baptized in the Spirit and placed into the local body of the church is by the use of our spiritual gifts. Now, one of the common problems that Christians have is that they say, well, that's great. I don't know what my spiritual gifts are. How can I know them? I'm so glad you've asked that question. Because this month's uh, oak leaf is all about serving. And the very front page article written by somebody I know pretty well is about spiritual gifts and serving. And I would encourage you to read that article because it gives a description of how we might be able to discern our spiritual gifts in the functioning of them for the blessing of the body of Christ and for the glory of God. Question, are we functioning with the equipment that the Holy Spirit has already provided? And to the extent that we can answer that question, yes, is the extent to which God is glorified in His church. Let's pray together.
Now, Lord, we pause to thank you for this direction from your word. Help us to live with the good theology that's found in the pages here, the three-in-one God who has distributed to us varieties of gifts, also called varieties of service, also called varieties of activities, also called the manifestation of the Spirit. God, the beautiful unity of the three-in-one God is expressed in the variety of spiritual gifts you give. We thank you for the one aim that you have for them is the building up of the body of Christ, the church. The one source, it's the Holy Spirit that gives it. And every one of us who are believers have been immersed by the Holy Spirit into the body of Christ. So Lord, help us both to discern the spiritual gifts you've given and then to use them serving your body, the church. Pray that those who've never put their faith in Jesus would do so, asking Jesus to forgive them of their sin by what he did at the cross. There is no spiritual gifting apart from salvation. There's no belonging to the church apart from salvation. I pray that they would forsake their sin and look to Christ and what he did at the cross to forgive them of their sin. He shed his blood, taking our place, becoming sin for us so that we might be the righteousness of God. And then, Lord, for those who haven't been baptized in water, I pray that they would do that as a reflection of their belief in Jesus as Savior. For those who've not become members of the local body of Christ, that they would do that as a way of expressing, I've been baptized in the Spirit, placed into the body of Christ, and I long to serve Jesus for His glory in the church with the gifts the Holy Spirit has given me. Then, Lord, I pray that you would help us to discern the spiritual gifts we have and then to use them. Or perhaps more importantly, we just start serving, and by doing that, we figure out what those gifts are. Oh, God, bless us as a church and as individuals in these matters to the end that you, oh, great God, would be glorified in your church. In Jesus' name, amen.